Welcome to Calvary Chapel Elizabeth City's online sermon series. Join us this week for Daniel chapter 8 with Pastor John King. Um, do we need to leave the decorations up? <laughs> Seriously? Seriously? We're not, we're not, we're not filming it. No, come on. I'll tell you what. Let's put them over here. Yay! Oh no, come on. It's a, you know how easily distracted I am. Some of you guys do, right? Y'all, he did this in military uh, too. We'll leave James, please. <laughs> so easily distracted. Well, thank you guys uh, very much. See how befuddled I can get too. Um, thank you guys, seriously. And th- again, this is not, it's about us. This is our church. God has given us a place to gather. God is good. God is number one. You know, we raise him up, so... Um, but it, it's fun to have fun once in a while, too, isn't it? <laughs> oh, my goodness. Thank you, Lord. Well, listen, um, today, a little bit on that, la- that uh, um, last-minute announcement to have an opportunity to witness over the next three Wednesdays. Uh, I told you I'm committed to doing that, where I'm committed to giving you guys opportunities. We put them out there, and you let the Lord work in your heart. Uh, these are three Wednesdays. I'm going to be attending one of them. It's during the day from about 9 till 1. So I realize many of you are working at that time. And the location is not a woman's wellness center, but an abortion center up in Virginia. There's five of them, apparently. And uh, you won't really need to do anything but kind of be a protective person there for Bill Legg. That's his full-time. He's a, he's a full-time evangelist. So many of you have met him. He's been teaching our way of the master class. And he, does, he normally has somebody that goes up with him. Uh, some of you may know Bill's a little bit older. And it's good for people to go out. When you go out to witness, it's good to go two by two, okay? At least two people. It can be very uh, dangerous for people to go out by themselves. So I'm not trying to, you know, stir you up or scare you in that regard. But, you know, if the Lord puts it on your heart and you're available on one of those Wednesdays, please uh, come see me and you'll be able to get a lot closer to what you normally don't see uh, in your day-to-day life at an abortion clinic. So today, we're going to be covering all of Daniel chapter 8. And so let me begin with, uh, while you're turning there, Daniel chapter 8, we're going to cover verses 1 through 27. But let me begin with a real quick recap of last week. We completed uh, our book of Daniel's first of four prophetic visions. Remember, Daniel's going to have four prophetic visions concerning what? The history and destiny of the nations of the world. And it really starts to focus in on Israel. But keep in mind the purpose of these things. You know, this is a prophecy is sort of difficult to have direct application sometimes. We're going to talk about how we can apply that. But let's, let's remember that what it does at a minimum is it gives us a vision of a clearer understanding of God's word. That God is, con- is in control of the unfolding of history, and of course, that ultimately he will return to establish his kingdom. That is the promise that we have. But we need that encouragement. So we reviewed last week the, fir- the four Gentile kingdoms from chapter 2. They were described as four beasts rising in succession from the great sea of humanity. Now, Daniel was very interested, and we noticed last week, he was very interested and he requested more information about, from the angel about the fourth beast, which is a kind of a dual prophecy concerning the ancient Roman Empire and a future revived version of that empire in the, end, in the last days. Reemerging in the last days is a ten-nation confederation in which turn gives way to an obscure leader referred to as the little horn, the little horn. The remainder of chapter 7 provided us with an overview of the rise of the Antichrist and his short-lived ability to lead a one-world government and then to make war on the tribulation saints and the Jews during the Great Tribulation for the last three and a half years especially. But then Jesus returns to put an end to his power over the nations. The Lord ushers in his 1,000-year millennial reign over the earth. And we remember from last week, the interpreting angel made this statement in verse 27. He said, His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. 
That's a heavenly decree that we keep seeing over and over again. Now this week, we're going to look into Daniel's second vision. And he's going to require another heavenly interpreter. The vision centers on the power struggle between two ancient empires. So he's going to circle back, if you will, to, into history. The Medo-Persians and the Greeks. This whole chapter is about you know, this, these two great empires and their transition. The Medo-Persians and the Greeks, which were led by Cyrus the Persian and Alexander the Great. Now, from Daniel's perspective, we will see that there was one very near prophecy, and that would be the transfer of power between Medo-Persia and Greece. And then we'll also see two future prophecies yet to play out, uh, which, in, in effect, they actually did play out. And so then for us, there's a third future prophecy that has not played out, and we'll explain that. And also remember that the recorded language also shifts from Aramaic back to Hebrew. Why is that? Because the primary subject of the information that's being given of this prophecy for the remainder of this book centers increasingly on the nation of Israel and what's going on with them. So let's, let's go ahead and, and we'll open with prayer. I'm not going to read the whole chapter up front. We're going to take it in smaller chunks, but let's bow our heads and pray. Father, we thank you for all the work that you do and all the stuff that you've done as we unfold history once again, Lord, from a biblical perspective. Lord, we see your wisdom, we see your guidance, and we have questions as well. And so, Lord, thank you that we get to revisit these wonderful um, prophecies from 2,500 years ago, Lord, just the, just the amazing things that have happened as you have been in charge of world history from the time you created it. And you will see it through right to the end until you create a new heaven and a new earth because you're in charge. And Lord, that's what makes you vastly, immensely different from any other belief system or philosophy. The fact that you are personal as well, that you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to die for us on the cross, that we might have eternal life. So you're the great creator, you're the great uh, you know, controller of, over human history, but you're also a personal God who loves us and wants to have a relationship with all of his creation. So Lord, we just ask that you go before us this morning as we study these words. And we pray this all in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. amen. Well, we start off with a vision of a ram. A vision of a ram. This is not everyday talk for us when we visualize things, but here we have it. And, and we'll just kind of go through the first four verses. He writes, In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, to me, Daniel, after the one that appeared to me the first time, last week's vision. I saw in the vision, and so it happened while I was looking, that I was in Shushan, the citadel, which is in the province of of Elam. And I saw in the vision that I was by the river Ulai. Then I lifted my eyes and saw, and there standing beside the river was a ram which had two horns. And the two horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. I saw the ram pushing westward, northward, and southward, so that no animal could withstand him, nor was there any that could deliver from his hand but he did according to his will and became great. Daniel gives us the, the historical context. He tells us where he is. He gives us some geography. This was in the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar. Now, last week we covered Daniel's first vision, which took place in the first year of Belshazzar, the king of Babylon. That would have been approximately 553 B.C. And these, these dates are kind of important. You may want to write them down as we trace prophetic history. But here we are in the third year, which according to scholars would be approximately 551 B.C. when he received his vision. Now, we, we, we said Daniel's going to have four visions over the course of uh, the last parts of the, the book. It sounds like an ice cream truck. <laughs> Good humor. <laughs> Sorry. Daniel's four visions occur over a time span of approximately 17 years. 
His first vision last week were the four beasts from the sea, 553. Second vision for today, which is 551 BC, which, by the way, would have been when he was about 69 years old. The third vision, which we'll see when we get back into the book of Daniel after Easter, is uh, in chapter 9. This is the 70 weeks prophecy. The 70 weeks prophecy. That was given in 539 BC, when Daniel was approximately 81 years old, and it coincides with the same year that Babylon fell to the Medo-Persians. So, you know, we've already covered that in prior chapters, but now we're kind of looking back. We're getting a closer look of prophecy uh, for God's reason. God's reason. He has us in this. Now, the final vision, which includes Israel's future and the end of the world, we will cover in chapters 10 through 12. And that happens in 536 B.C., approximately, when Daniel was 84 years old. So when he came into the exile, the 70-year exile, Daniel was you know, most likely a, uh, a young teenager or a middle-aged teenager. And he's been there the whole time. And he's been faithful to the Lord the whole time. So if you want an application, look to Daniel's life. He's been faithful. He didn't quit. He didn't fall away from the Lord. He didn't, you know, we don't know his struggles. Surely he had struggles, but he remained faithful all of his life. Don't you want to do that? Don't you want to have that for your legacy, for your children and your grandchildren? I know I do. He says, I saw the vision, and so it happened while I was looking that I was in Shushan, the citadel. So he's, again, he's giving us this actual location. You know, he's being like he's being transported to this location. But notice his vision, he was awake. You know, as opposed to many of his visions and many of the dreams that you and I have, it's while we're asleep. But Daniel's awake, uh, and he sees these things. He, it doesn't say, it doesn't indicate that he's in a, in a sleepy a trance, if you will, or a dream. Visions of God, what are they? Well, from, visions from God are, what, are simple. It's one form of divine communication. And it was used a lot in the Old Testament and even in the New Testament before we had the written word. But we still have. God still gives men and women visions and he still speaks to them through these divine communications, but the, the authority is God's word. So whenever you have a vision and you have a dream, you'll find that 99% of the time it doesn't line up with the word of God. It has more to do with, um, you know, po possibly your diet that night. Um, now on occasion, though, the Lord will put something on your heart and he will confirm it with scripture. So let's not minimize that. Let's not act like a bunch of people that don't believe in supernatural things. That's, that's bad for the church. And so visions from God, they can come day or night, asleep or awake. Some objects are strange, like giant statues and beasts with iron teeth and brass claws and ten horns and eyes like a man, all that kind of stuff. But often they pertain to daily life, and daily life in the ancient world would include lions and bears and leopards and lions and tigers and bears. That was real, okay? That was real. Uh, they're, now they're relegated for the most part to uh, the Dismal Swamp and... Um, Zeus. A lot of bears around here, apparently, I've been told. And he says, I saw while I was looking. In other words, he saw this. This was a, a very distinct, and as you're going to see, a very detailed vision. And he was in this place called Shushan, by the way. It's a Susa. It's a modern Shush. It uh, was the royal residence of the Persian Empire. It is located about 150 miles north of the head of the Persian Gulf. And it's about 200 miles east of Babylon, ancient Babylon. So it's a, low, it's a place to this day. And apparently there's an amazing, an amazing amount of uh, archaeological work has been done through the years. It just, again, confirms all the history that we learned from the Bible. And he says, I saw in the vision that I was by the river Ulai. Uh, now, again, this was known as the Kirka River. And it's since changed course, but during Daniel's day, it was like a, like a canal that ran along the side of the city of Susa, or Shushan. And he was kind of above where it forked. He was about 20 miles north, and he was between these two rivers. And we'll come back to that in verse 16. Now in verse 3, he says, Then I lifted up my eyes, and I saw there standing by the river was a ram. A ram with two horns. Some of you uh, big game hunters know what I'm talking about. He says, then I lifted my eyes. So God is again communicating to Daniel with an animal he would have been familiar with. 
The word aram is a word, Hebrew word for strength. Uh, some scholars say this was possibly an astrological symbol um, for what we would, the, the pagans would have had as a first century zodiac list. Uh, Persians. So it would have been, it would have identified, it would have been familiar not only to Daniel, but to the culture. And it had two horns. Now later on, the angel Gabriel is going to interpret these as symbolic of the two kings of Media and Persia. And they were high. Both had, they were both great kingdoms. So there's, there's this picture. Nothing that unusual so far. He says, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. So one, it indicates, remember, what a horn means to an ancient writer, it's a, it's a, it's a power. It's a, it's, a, it's a symbol of power. It's a symbol of, of a kingdom. And so the higher one came up last. There was a joint association between Cyrus the Great and the Persians, the, the, uh, the Medes. Cyrus was a Persian. And so there was two kingdoms put together. And remember, we said this was no longer going to be like the greatest kingdom uh, from, a, from a leadership standpoint, which would have been King Nebuchadnezzar. He was a sole leader. These are now, you're starting to see the world governments having to work together uh, and try to cooperate with one another. And this would be the, this is the, the uh, situation we have even to this day. It's not, leadership is rarely focused on a single individual. And when it is, it turns out bad. And we're seeing that today, right? We're seeing that in uh, Putin. He says, and I saw the ram pushing westward and northward and southward. So again, this is a vision of a Medo-Persian empire with the two horns, and it speaks to the way that they conquered the world. They pushed northward, they pushed uh, towards the Scythians, against the Greeks they moved westward, and against the Egyptians they moved southward. And one writer puts it this way, it says, it says here in the text, it says, nor was there any who could deliver from his hand, but he did according to his will and became great. This is what this nation uh, did, this kingdom. And we noted that for nearly 200 years, this is a very long-lasting, uh, no nation was able to withstand the powerful and cruel attack of Medo-Persia. This terrifying beast did it as it pleased and became the largest emperor, empire until that time in the human history. So, you know, again, we're, we're just kind of going through history here. But keep in mind, you know, you can talk about these nations, you can talk about the rise and fall of nations and kingdoms, but we know that there is only one kingdom, and that kingdom will last forever. Again, application. You look at world history. Wow, that's cool. And you can read about it. But one kingdom will last forever. Amen? So now we have a vision of a goat. We had a ram. Enter the goat. Verses 5 through 8. And as I was considering, suddenly a male goat came from the west across the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground, and the goat had a notable horn between his eyes. Then he came to the ram that had two horns, which I had seen standing beside the river, and ran at, ran at him with furious power. And I saw him confronting the ram. He was moved with rage against him. He attacked the ram and broke his two horns." There was no power in the ram to withstand him, but he cast him down to the ground and he trampled him. And there was no one that could deliver the ram from his hand. Verse 8, Therefore the male goat grew very great. But when he became strong, the large horn was broken. And in place of it, four notable ones came up toward the four winds of heaven. Male goats are known for their leaping or prancing. But here, I'll just cut to the chase. This male goat represents the Grecian Empire. It represents the Grecian Empire. Why? Because he came from the West. The Grecian Empire was headed up by Alexander the Great. He came from the Mediterranean, west of Mesopotamia, and into southern Iran and Iraq, and all throughout uh, Egypt and all over the place, as far as India. And it says he, without touching the ground, this refers to the speed of his conquests. When Alexander the Great came to conquer the world, and that was his desire, the known world, he did it in less than 12 years. 
less than 12 years. And, you know, it's an amazing thing. You can do some really uh, interesting, if you're a history buff, some very interesting research on Alexander the Great. Because nations and armies and navies and governments have been studying him for century upon century because he was such a great leader and his tactics are timeless. His tactics in the battlefield were timeless. But notice the goat had a notable horn between his eyes. The notable horn, very conspicuous, was, like I said, Alexander the Great. In verse 21, Gabriel would, will interpret him as the first king of this Grecian empire. And then he came to the ram. He ran at him with furious power. He had a burning rage. The battles between the Greeks and the Persians were legendary in the ancient world. When Alexander began his conquest, he initially defeated the Persians at the Battle of Granicus in 334 B.C. The second battle, the Persians were now being led by their king Darius, who had to come out and try to face Alexander. And they met in the Battle of Issus in 333 B.C. It was a resounding defeat for the Persians. And that's referenced here in verse 7, uh, that the next uh, final battle. It says here, And I saw him confronting the ram, and he was moved with rage against him, and he attacked the ram and broke his two horns. Remember, he broke the two horns, the Medo-Persian Empire. He destroyed it. Why the rage? Why the rage? Why was Alexander so um, angry? And, and, you know, and one, of the, one of the main reasons is probably, many people would believe, because the Persians were, were known for their famous, they were famous, let's say, for their cruelty. And I'm not going to go into all the details of how they skinned people alive and such, but they were famous for their cruelty and how they treated their prisoners and how they conquered people. And that stuff was now in the mind of this young Macedonian, and he was angry because they had come against Greece in prior times. That's not to say that in the ancient world there wasn't terrible things being done, uh, cruel and unusual punishments for decades and centuries and centuries. Even our own country had to outlaw cruel and unusual punishment when our nation was founded because of the practices that were still in place. Notice that there was no power in the ram to withstand him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled him. This is referring to the third great battle at Guag. Guagamela in 331 BC. This is the subject for military historians and leaders even to this day. The consequence of this victory was the submission of the greater portion of the entire Persian Empire. He took it over. So what happens when, when empires come and they roll over other nations? It says here in verse 8, Therefore the male goat grew very great, but when he became strong, the large horn was broken. So you see, with this rise of power and this rise of strength, what comes in? Pride. And God has a limited time frame where he will allow a leader to control a nation. And, and oftentimes it's way too long than we think that person deserves. We'll talk about that a little bit later. And it says here, he became strong and the large horn was broken. He grew militarily because he never, he never lost a single battle. But he also grew prideful. Prior to his uh, defeating the Persians, he went down to Egypt. And they'd heard so much about him that they gave up no fight whatsoever. In fact, they, because of their, 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 um, their culture, they declared him as a son of God, which he took personally. And he had coins minted, you know. He, he really thought a lot. And he had his head adorned with this, this ram's horn of this Egyptian god called Amun-Ra. And so you have coins minted that they find archaeologically from that day. And then Alexander would invade India. He continued his conquest as far as the Satlug River in northern India, kind of near Pakistan. But his soldiers finally refused to follow him. He had worn them so hard and he, he was forced to give up his hopes and he returned to Babylon, where he had hoped to make his, his headquarters, and he had great plans for the future, but he died from malaria and a very reckless lifestyle. At the age of 33, he was gone. At the age of 33. 
Now, in the place of it, it says here, Daniel says, four notable ones came up from the four winds of heaven. This refers to, we talked about last week, the four senior generals who were left with this great kingdom, and here their leader had just suddenly died, and so they divided up the kingdom between four great generals. Now, one of them in particular was Seleucius. Very important for us because we're going to talk about somebody else who's going to come along and happen in ancient prophecy who comes from that particular group. But keep in mind, you know, again, you say, well, how does this, how does this history lesson help me as a Christian? How does it help me to understand? Well, keep in mind, it's been pointed out for years. God used both Greece and the Roman Empire to prepare the way for the coming of his son, the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Alexander, as he conquered nation upon nation, he not only conquered them, but he brought Hellenistic or Greek culture into those lands. So that eventually, even when the Romans, uh, even though they they brought their own language, Koine Greek was the, the language of the day. It was the lingua franca, if you will, of the ancient world during Jesus' time. Koine Greek is the language of the New Testament. And so God prepared these things. In fact, it says in Galatians 4, 4 and 5, the fullness of time. The fullness of time had come. It says that God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. In the fullness of time, God used these great empires and brought this language and culture in and set up the road system and set up the communication system so that when the gospel was released, it could go everywhere God, Jesus said to take it. It could go all over the place. And so when the Great Commission was given, it's because God planned and made the way for it to happen, not that it wouldn't be resisted. When Jesus Christ came, it was far easier to carry the message of the gospel to the world due to the common language of Greek, the peace and freedom of travel, and the sharing of ideas that were enforced by Rome. You know, Rome thought they were conquering the world, but they actually were open to ideas. And so the idea of Christianity was given the ability to spread Now think of the people, think of the events in your life that you've been through that God used to prepare you for the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, one of the best things you can do, you may have done it, I did it, I I need to do it again, is to sit down and read his story in your life. Think back of the first people who introduced you to the Bible. The people, the names, the place, they will come to mind. And you'll be able to write down and you'll be like, Lord, you've been working all this time in my life. And you brought me to a place where I can worship you as Lord and Savior because of the work that you did. Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which which God prepared beforehand that we should now walk in them. Next, in our next section, we're going to see the near and far prophecies, if you will. Some of the prophecies that took place. Daniel 8, verses 9 through 14. And it says, And out of one of them came a little horn which grew exceedingly great towards the south. Remember I said pay attention to that Seleucid king. And this is the one. Toward the east and toward the glorious land, which is Israel. Verse 10, And it grew up to the host of heaven, and it cast down some of the host and some of the stars to the ground and trampled them. He even exalted himself as high as the prince of the host. And by him, the daily sacrifices were taken away. And the place of his sanctuary was cast down. Verse 12, because of his transgression, an army was given over to the horn to to oppose, excuse me, because of transgression, an army was given over to the horn to oppose the daily sacrifices. The Jews had returned to their land by now. This is far in the future that Daniel's talking about. The exile was over and they'd returned to their land. They rebuilt their temple and they were back to giving sacrifices. And he cast down truth uh, to the ground. He did all this and he prospered. Remember we said, why do you let, Lord, why do you let people prosper in their wickedness? 
In verse 13, then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to that certain one who was speaking. So a heavenly conversation that Daniel's overhearing right now. How long will the vision be concerning the daily sacrifices and the transgression of desolation, the giving of both the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot? And he answered, verse 14, he said to me, for 2,300 days, then the sanctuary shall be cleansed. The sanctuary will be cleansed. Now out of them, out of these four leaders that took over from Alexander the Great, there was one that another little horn came out of, right out of that fourth kingdom. Not a fifth horn, but out of that fourth kingdom, which grew exceedingly great toward the south and toward the east. You know, again, we talk about this idea of a horn meaning strength, a horn meaning, uh, you know, symbol for power. Luke 1, 68 and 69, I don't have that verse. Um, this was Zacharias' prophecy. Um, after John the Baptist, he was, he was prophesying about John the Baptist, and he was talking about the, co the coming one, Jesus. He said, Blessed is the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people, and he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. This speaks of the strong strength of salvation, the strong strength of the gospel. Now we look at these, these horns, and again, I, I agree, it can get very complicated when you look at this prophetic and you start talking about in language that you're not used to using. We need to keep in mind when we talk about this little horn, it's not, here's one, one writer said it this way. He said, it's not to be confounded with the little horn of the fourth kingdom. This was back in Daniel 7, 8, back from last week, if you've been taking notes. The little horn in Daniel 7, 8 comes as, the, as an 11th horn from the 10 preceding horns. Like, wait, okay, wait a minute. Remember, there's 10, a, a, a confederation of 10 nations. And remember, there was another little horn, an 11th one that grew up to become the Antichrist. So this is not the same little horn is what we're trying to say. In Daniel 8, 9, our verse right now, it is not independent. It's not an independent fifth horn after the four previous one, but it arises out of the one of the four existing horns, which is the Seleucid Empire, the Seleucids. And he is none other than the historical figure known as Antiochus Epiphanes. He gave himself that last name. He was a Seleucid ruler who outlawed Judaism in an attempt to Hellenize Judea. He had the same idea that Alexander the Great had about spreading Greek culture, but he wanted to do it at the expense of the Jewish religion, Judaism. And he reigned historically from 175 to 164 BC. This is a historical person. This is a ruler. What's known as the Maccabean Revolt arose in reaction to him and what he was doing to the Jewish people. He was a great oppressor. He would sacrifice Zeus in their temple. And this is an event known as the Abomination of Desolation, which is similar to the Abomination of Desolation yet to come in the Great Tribulation. Stay with me. Now, Antiochus Epiphanes, through very ruthless aggression and military conquest, he became very, he's a historical figure, you can verify him, he became very powerful. Many commentators refer to him as the Old Testament Antichrist. The Old Testament Antichrist. And many people believe that Daniel's prophecy prepared the nation Israel for what was going to happen to them. Because by this time they had come out of the exile and they were living in the land again. Okay, we were fast forwarding nearly 200 years from when this was given. And they came up against the terrible persecution of this guy, Antiochus Epiphanes. Notice that he invaded. He invaded Persia. He invaded Armenia and the glorious land. He came and he pushed his agenda. Again, trying to continue on where Alexander the Great left off. Toward the glorious land, if you have an NIV, it's called the beautiful land. This is Israel and Jerusalem. Daniel caused the land of Israel beautiful because it was the homeland as well as the land that God promised to Abraham and his descendants who truly followed the Lord. 
Ezekiel 26, it says, On that day I raised my hand in an oath to them to bring them out of the land of Egypt into a land that I had searched out for them, flowing with milk and honey, the glory of all lands. Why do we, why do we seek to support the nation Israel? You know, many warnings in the Bible, those who bless the nation Israel, he will bless, but those who curse, he will curse. But it's because that's where our Lord and Savior, Jesus, was born. That's where he came up and he came from the Jews. Jesus was Jewish. And our Savior was born there. And so we, it is a beautiful place when you think about it. It is a beautiful land. It's a glorious land. Verse 10, And it grew up from the host of heaven to the host of heaven. So now Antiochus is now growing powerful, is what he's describing. And it cast down some of the host and some of the stars to the ground and trampled them. What are we talking about? The host of heaven, oftentimes referred to in ancient literature and in the Bible, referring to the people of God, who at that time, they represented God on earth. As the church does now. And it cast down some of them, of the hosts, into the stars of the ground. Antiochus waged war with God's people and their leaders, their stars, if you will. That's what this reference is. is. And, you know, it's amazing that uh, you can talk all you want about end times and the different views on end times, but this particular chapter of Daniel, there's very little difference between all the positions on what this is saying, from the historical aspect and everything else. So we don't, we're not entering a lot of controversy here. What's wrong with that? I don't know. Uh, verse 11. He even exalted himself as high as the prince of the host, you see, he thought so highly of himself that he gave himself the title Epiphanes, which means a manifest or as of God. And he, he really thought he was God. And, and by him, the daily sacrifices were taken away. Because of his pride, he took away their worship of God through the temple sacrifices. Now, what you, if you've been studying Exodus with us and you've been studying the Old Testament, you realize that when you take away from the Jews their ability to sacrifice, you have just crushed their religious practices. You have destroyed them. And they, he has oppressed them. And they're no longer allowed to have sacrifices in the temple while he's in charge. And the place of his sanctuary was cast down. Now, read this. Uh, David Guzik says this, summarizing. Antiochus's suppression of the Jews came to a head in December of 168 B.C., when he returned in defeat from Alexandria, he went and he ordered his generals to seize Jerusalem on the Sabbath. And there he set up an idol to Zeus and desecrated the altar by an offering of swine and the sprinkling of pig's juices in the sanctuary. Sacrifice stopped because the temple had been desecrated. This is a historical fact. And a lot of people will say, well, that was when the tribulation was. It was back then, and he was the Antichrist. And I disagree. If you want to read about him, you want to learn about him, you can go to the historians, Josephus. You can go to the apocryphal books. They're not inspired books. You can read in First and Second Maccabees. And you can read the history for yourself. It describes his blasphemies. By some estimates... He was responsible for the murder of more than 100,000 Jews, according to one writer. And why? Why was God allowing this? Well, look at verse 12, why this was being allowed to happen. He says, because of transgression, an army was given over to the horn, Antiochus, to oppose the daily sacrifices. In other words, the Lord himself gave this man the power to oppress and take away their sacrifices. God allowed it to happen through Antiochus' army. And he cast down truth to the ground. So, you know, God gave the temporary power just like he did for many rulers in the past. Uh, Belshazzar, or uh, excuse me, um, um, yeah, the, the guy we were talking, the first part of Daniel, who's the great king. Help me. Nebuchadnezzar, thank you, thank you. God gave him the power to do this. And he cast it down to the ground, and he did this, and he prospered. In other words, he was allowed to do this terrible thing in the eyes of the Jews, and it was terrible. 
and he prospered. He cast down truth. He cast down what they would believe is true religion and a true method of worshiping God. It was discarded. Not that it, these were given to God, they were given to the people by God, but it was how they were worshiping. In fact, historians say that he actually had the law of Moses, the books of the Old Testament that were existing at that time, torn to pieces and burned up. God allowed this. Now, when we talk about, um, and it was because of their idolatry. It was because of the nation Israel. You know, they continue on that up and down, up and down uh, thing. And that's why the Lord, you know, came and set things right. But Isaiah 59, 14 speaks to this. It says, justice is turned back and righteousness stands afar off. For truth is fallen in the street and equity cannot enter. When you see something on the news, you know, or you, you hear the stuff that goes on in this world, you can say with Isaiah, you know, truth has fallen off. It's, fall, it's off the chain. You know, it's fallen in the street. It's being trampled on. There is no truth being spoken anymore. Equity cannot enter. So we look around and we see the state of things, and here we can apply the fact that, you know, when you read these things, that we need to have courage. John 16, 33, he says, These things I, Jesus, I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. You've heard that. Maybe it's, you know, you're going through something in your life. Maybe that, that verse is worn out on you. Well, I would ask you to renew it. Renew it. Renew your strength in the Lord. Understand the grace that he's poured out on you, okay? Because when we start to get frustrated, we start looking at others. That's a bad place, bad thing to do, when we should be looking to the Lord. <clears throat> now he hears in verse 13 uh, a heavenly conversation. He says, I heard a holy one speaking and another and said, uh, you know, what's going on? They're having this this question and answer between them, like, how long is this going to go on? How long is God going to allow this guy to do this? And the answer comes in verse 14. He said to me, for 2,300 days, then the sanctuary shall be cleansed. 2,300 days literally means 2,300 evenings and mornings. They did calendars different back then. We're going to find that out as we come into the Passion Week and Easter we're going to have to revisit the old calendar and how they counted days and, and such like that. So this could be translated anywhere from a little over three years to a little over six years, depending on how you go when you count it that way. But notice that it says, then the sanctuary shall be cleansed or justified. The literal word is justified or vindicated from the profane. The... Um, the Maccabean revolt that took place against Antiochus was led by a, name, a guy named Judas Maccabeus. Go figure, right? And he, what he did was he, started, he made a, an annual feast that was celebrated for eight days in the middle of our December. It was the 25th of the month of Chislev. He instituted this in 164 B.C. in memory of the cleansing of the temple from the pollution of Antiochus Epiphanies. This was a historical event. Now, when Jesus came in his time, John 10 22 uh, notes that when Jesus came to Jerusalem, it says, Now it was the feast of dedication in Jerusalem. And it was winter. So that that feast that was established by Judas Maccabeus, Jesus actually came to actually participate in that feast of dedication. So we've looked at this historical account of this uh, ruler, um, but we're also going to see he's an example of the future Antichrist. Everything that he did, as terrible as it was, is really nothing in comparison to what the Antichrist will do. And that's the far prophecy of what's being given here. So we'll start to see that, through the, like I said, the rest of Daniel, it focuses on the nation Israel. So now we see in verses 15 through 7, very quickly, Daniel meets Gabriel. So now we see in one of only three places in the Bible where an angel is named, has a name. 
They all have names, but the only time it's recorded. It says, Then it happened when I, Daniel, had seen the vision and was seeking the meaning, that suddenly there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Uli who called and said, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So he came near where I stood, and when he came, I was afraid, and I fell on my face, but he said to me, Understand, son of man, that the vision refers to the time of the end. Angels often came in human form. He heard a man's voice speaking. So he heard a man's voice in something intelligent, intelligible to him, and he's like, this voice from heaven, we don't know who it was, whether it was another angel, whether it was the Lord, we don't know. And he's telling Gabriel, make this guy understand what's going on here. You, you, you know, here was Daniel, the guy who God had given him the ability to interpret dreams, and again, he's having to have it interpreted for himself. So he's like, make this man understand. Gabriel's name literally means strength of God. And so he has this encounter in verse 17. He came where I stood, and there he was, between the two rivers that we were at by the river Ulai. And when he came, I was afraid, and I fell on my face. This is very common. We've said it before. If you and I ever have an encounter with the, an angel in heavenly form, not just as a man, which can happen, uh, you're not going to stand there and go, you're not going to try and go high-five with the guy. I guarantee you that. You are going to fall down, and, and then he's going to, you know, if he's an angel from the Lord, he's going to lift you up and assure you that he's not there to hurt you. You better hope not. <laughs> anyway, uh, he says, understand, son of man. Now, now, he's not talking about, you know, we talked about son of man as another name for the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a reference to man, somebody who's, who's descended from Adam, the first man. He says, look, the vision refers to the time of the end. He tells him right then and there that what you're seeing is the time of the end. But where they were in history was not the time of the end. And it wasn't, you know, it wasn't something that happened previously. It is the future for you and I. Matthew 24, 15. He's referring to the end times that Jesus himself prophesied. We see it there. You've seen it. I don't, do we have Matthew 24? Uh, 15 through 22, it says, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand. So again, there's a future abomination of desolation. It happened historically, but it's going to happen in the future. It says, Then those, let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who was on the housetop not go down and take anything out of his house. And let him who was in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant in, the, in those days and nursing babies on those days. And it goes on. And it says in verse 22, And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. David Guzik writes this. He says, The answer is that though this prophecy was fulfilled with Antiochus Epiphanes, it is also a later fulfillment of the Antichrist because he's referring to the time of the end. Yeah. Moving on. Gabriel now gives the interpretation. Verses 18 through 26. I'm not going to read through. You can follow with me in, in, uh, for the sake of time. In verse 18, it says, Now he was speaking to me, and I was in a deep sleep with my face to the ground. Why? Well, he's probably overwhelmed for you by the presence of a heavenly being. This is a good reminder for you and I, because we need to be in awe of the things of God. We, we get to be, our lives get to be so mundane and so routine. And not only that, but we can lose our wonder of God. We can lose, you know, the greatness of God. With the song we sang, you know, the greatness of our God uh, a couple weeks ago. We can become spiritually numb. And so what do you do with that? Well, start by worshiping him and then preach the gospel back to yourself. Remind yourself what happened. Remind yourself of the grace that he's poured out. And, you know, thankfully, we have our Easter season to remind us of that corporately. But individually, check yourself. See if you're starting to become spiritually numb to God. It can happen. But he touched me and stood me upright, having scared him to sleep. <laughs> he now stood Daniel up to listen. And he said, look, 
I am making known to you what shall happen in the latter time of the indignation. What indignation? God's indignation, God's anger. This is a time of wrath. This is a latter part. You know, he's going to pour out his wrath on the world. For at the appointed time, the end shall be. Jesus is saying, hey, it wasn't Antiochus in so many words. He would have not acknowledged him as a historical. He knew about the Feast of Dedication. Jesus is saying this is a future event. He goes on in verse 20, and he, he just kind of reiterates. You know, the ram which you saw having two horns, they are the kings of Media or Persia. So clearly the Bible validates everything being said. That's why there's less argument about this. Verse 21, and the male goat is the kingdom of Greece, and that large hand that is between his eyes is its first king, Alexander, like we said. And as for the broken horn and the four that stood in its place, four kingdoms shall arise. We talked about the four kings. But not with the same power that Alexander had because they were now divided. Verse 22, in the latter time of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their fullness, a king shall rise. Now this is where we have the dual fulfillment we talked about Antiochus Epiphanes, but we also know that there will be another one who rises. We know him as Antichrist. A king shall rise having fierce features who understand sinister schemes. They're both characterized by their cunning flattery, if you will. Verse 24, his power shall be mighty, but not by his own power. He shall destroy fearfully and shall prosper and thrive. He shall destroy the mighty and also the holy people. Antiochus Epiphanes was empowered by Satan and was allowed by God, and the same will be true for the coming Antichrist, writes David Guzik. He shall prosper and thrive. He shall destroy the mighty and also the holy people. They all start out successful, okay? All these great crazy tyrants, they all start out looking good because they're filling a need. But at the end, it doesn't work out. Look at your history books. Look at the world around us. It says in verse 25, Through his cunning he shall cause deceit to prosper under this, his rule, and he shall exalt himself. 2 Thessalonians 2, 9 and 10. It says, The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan, with all power, signs, and lying wonders. And with all unrighteousness, deception among those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. So there's consequences for those who reject God. And he shall destroy many in their prosperity. He shall even give rise against the prince of princes. Both of these men hated God and they hate God. And they will hate God and God's people. And you can see it by the persecution that goes on. The Antichrist will actually stand in battle formation with the nations of the world against a heavenly God. Against the armies of heaven, he will stand against. You say, why would he, why, who would do anything such as that? Well, this Antichrist will. Revelation 19, 19 and 20, And I saw the beast, the kings of the earth, and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. That's Jesus, okay, and the army that he's coming with. Then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet, who worked signs in his presence by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire burning with brimstone. So they meet their end. He will meet their end. Yeah. Same thing with Antiochus Epiphanes. He shall be broken without Human means, you see in verse 25. History tells us that Antiochus Epiphanes died of disease, not by the hand of man. And in a similar way, no man will defeat the coming Antichrist, but the hand of Jesus will strike him down. Amen? Verse 26, And the vision and the evenings and mornings which was told is true, therefore, seal it up. Seal it up. For it refers to many days which are in the future. So the angel is saying, look, everything I've told you is true. You can bank on it. It's a heavenly divine truth. But I want you to seal it up because it refers to a time in the future. There's many things in God's plan that need to happen before then.
Now, we live in a different time because now we have the Bible and we have the book of Revelation. We have all the, all the prophecies been revealed. God's, God's word has been given to us in its complete form. He said, seal it, he says, because many days in the future. That was true at the time for Daniel. But you and I have been given the rest of the story, haven't we? Not only do we have the Great Commission to go out and tell others about Jesus and to stand for truth, but we've been given the, great, the rest of the story because we know that the time is near. So when you look at Revelation, the beginning and the ends of the book of Revelation, verses uh, Revelation 1-3, it says to us, Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. Revelation 22.10, and he said to me, do not seal the words of the prophecy of this book, unlike what he told Daniel. Do not seal the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is at hand. And the question has to be, for everyone who's hearing the sound of my voice, everyone here, are you ready? Are you ready? Whether the Lord takes you out naturally, it's through, you know, uh, I mean, we wouldn't want to see uh, the tragedy of uh, early death or old age, but it happens. Are you ready? Are you ready to meet the Lord? If we're the ones, if we, if we are the people who are going to be on the planet when the rapture happens, are you ready? And finally, here we see in Daniel 8.27, he, he feels the effects of prophecy. Every time I study and, and preach this, and I, I don't know if you're sensing it, this will wear you out. <laughs> Sorry, we did go a little long. I get that too. It says, And I, Daniel, fainted and was sick for days. Afterward, I arose and went about the king's business. I was astonished by the vision, but no one understood it. Again, it was sealed up for that day. We see how draining it was. But notice what Daniel did. You want some application? Notice what Daniel did. Follow Daniel. He put it aside. He was sick. He recovered. And what did he do? He went about the king's business. And that's what we're called to do. We're called to take our example from Daniel, to be about the Lord's business, to occupy until he returns. Now, we've covered a lot of information. Again, what do we do it? We'll take it as assurance of things present and things to come. God is in control of the unfolding of history and that ultimately he will return to establish his kingdom on earth. It also sounds like salvation, doesn't it? He's taking care of our past sin. He will lead and guide us through the present times of our lives. And he has promised to give us a future and a hope for eternity. So if you're ready for eternity then go out and share the good news. If you're not ready for eternity, consider your life and where you're at with God. Examine your heart. Examine the scriptures. You guys go to church all the time. You know where the Bible is. If you happen to be somebody who's playing church and doesn't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you have the resources to change that. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, we thank you for our time this morning. Uh, Lord, I thank you for the graciousness and the patience of everyone here for this long teaching. Lord, I ask that it would bear fruit in our lives and that you would go before us in all that we do. And Lord, that we would be ready when the time has come. That we would commit to be busy about the king's business. That we would about the work that you've given us, Lord. And you've, you've given us opportunities and even other opportunities that others don't know about. You've given them to us. You provided a way for us to walk in them. Lord, will you, will you equip us? Will you strengthen us? Will you encourage us? We thank you, Lord, for all that you do. We thank you for your loving kindness. We thank you for the joy that you've set before us. Go before us today as we conclude our service. And we ask this all in our precious Savior, Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, Amen. Well, let's stand. We're going, to re we're going to recite our closing scriptures for today. Let's stand and say this together. I know you've been sitting a long time. I've been standing a long time. So, <laughs> but let's do it. Okay. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his countenance face and be gracious to you. 
The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Now let's go and grow in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for joining us today for Calvary Chapel Elizabeth City's online sermon series. Join us next week as we continue through the Bible, book by book, verse by verse, line by line. God bless.